Pray that we'd be prepared to be a sanctuary, Father, that you'd be working in our life. And Lord, we would just pray that this might be to your glory and not ours. And Father, we would pray that your promise would hold true, that your word would not return void. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today we're going to start a, a new series. We're going to be looking at the, the doctrine of life. Uh, this is what's going to be kind of our theme this year is, is life. I, I started thinking about this late last year and, and really prayed about it. And I realized uh, this is something that we don't often talk about or often think about as Christians. We, we think about life, no doubt. But what about the doctrine of life? What does the Bible teach us about life? And there are going to be three things that we constantly hammer on here in 2020, about so 2019, but we're in a new year, uh, in, in 2020. And that is, one, physical life. The Bible speaks quite a bit about physical life. And that's what we think about when we think about this idea of life, especially from a, a Christian perspective. But also within this doctrine of life, there's another main tentacle, and that is eternal life. And so we're going to be focusing in quite a bit on eternal life. Can we really talk and really understand what the Bible teaches about life without understanding what does the Bible teach about eternal life? And the third thing is, is our response to this, and that is we ought to worship the giver of life. We ought to worship the giver of life. But let's go ahead and let's open our Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 1, because we're going to be looking at that, what we read for Scripture reading, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and then also verses 26 and 27. When we think about this idea of the doctrine of life, we have to start in the beginning, where, where life began. Where did life, be, life begin for mankind? Well, it starts all the way back in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis. And so we're going to be looking really at the first part of Genesis. We're going to start looking at that uh, throughout, uh, throughout the, the beginning of this year. But we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, and then also Genesis 1, 1, and then verses, we're actually going to expand at one verse. Go to verse 26 through 28. But you follow along as I read. It says in Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 26 through 28, it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The first thing that I want us to see here as it comes to this idea of the doctrine of life, understanding life, is that God is self-existent. God is self-existent. Now, we're going to spend quite a bit of time looking at this idea here that God is self-existent, but we see this in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God. In the beginning, God. And this is absolutely foundational. And this is foundational for physical life. This is foundational for spiritual life. And of course, this is foundational if we're going to be worshiping the one who gives life, that in the beginning, God, God is self-existent. Because simply put, when it comes to life, life had to come from something. And we're going to develop that idea in just a moment. But let's start off with that premise. Life had to come from something. Death does not give birth to life. 
Life, living things do not come from dead things. Scientifically, they do not come from dead things. But when it comes to to physical life, this is absolutely foundational. And God is the foundation for life, for physical life. In John 1, 1 through 4, which, which in some ways mirrors, it is kind of like the Genesis 1 of, of the New Testament. But in John 1, 1 through 4, it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and this life was the light of men. He made all things. Of course, this word, if we were going to go down to John 1, all the way down to verse 14, it would go and tell us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we celebrated last month. At Christmas, it is that Christ came, that he is God, and he became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the incarnation. But here we see that he, God, Jesus Christ, made all things. He made all things. Things. And this is a, a foundational thing. This is a foundation to understand the doctrine of life. Where did life come from? It comes from God. And in him was life, or in him is life. We read this as eternal life, and it's true, and we'll get to that in just a moment, that in God is eternal life, but in God is also physical life. This is where physical life comes from. It is God who created Mankind. In fact, if we look at the, the context of John 1, 1 through 4, it's actually much more in context with a physical thrust. With this idea of he created all things. He created all physical things. Physical life is within God. But let's, uh, let's go over to Job chapter 38. And we're going to be looking at a few different passages here this morning, but, but our main text will be Genesis 1, 1, and then also verses 26 through 28. But in Job chapter 38, it tells us in verses 1 through 11, and this is, this is really an incredible passage of Scripture. Really, I wish we could go and look at about four chapters of Job, but we don't have time to do that this morning. So we're just going to be looking at uh, 11 verses in Job 38, 1 through 11. It says this, And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens the counsel by word without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined the measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? To where, what was, were its foundations fastened? Or who laid the corner, its cornerstone? When the morning star sang together, and all the sons of God shouted with, for joy, or who shut the seas with its doors? When it burst forth and issued from the womb, when I made the clouds its garments, and the thick darkness with its swaddling bands, when I fixed my limit for it, and set bars in the doors, when I said... This far you may come, but no farther, and here you, uh, your proud waves must stop. Now, I wish we could continue going here and look at it really through chapter 41 of Job and go and look at all these other passages in Job because it's really an incredible idea here. You see, Job, he was an upright, he was a righteous man. He was the greatest man on all the earth. And Satan comes before God and God says, you know, where have you been? And Satan says, well, I've been to and fro on the earth. And God says, have you seen my servant Job? That he is righteous, that he is perfect, that he is upright in his way. 
And Satan goes and says, well, yeah, I've seen him, but it's just because you have had put a hedge about him. You've blessed him. You've given him all these great things. And that's the only reason why he is actually a good guy, why he is righteous, why he's upright, why he's, he's, he's blameless in all these things. And God says, okay, well, we'll take his possessions away. Just don't harm him. And Job still didn't sin against God. He still worshiped God and all that. And then Satan goes and says, well, it's because you haven't taken his health. You've given him good health. God says, fine, strike his health. Now, through that, uh, all, all this, Job stayed a pretty much upright man. But, but, but through this here, Job's friends come and they counsel him and they tell him, Job, surely this is because of sin that all this calamity has come, that you've lost all your wealth, that you've lost all your children, that you've lost your health, that you've lost all, all but just a few servants, that your wife is sitting here telling you, curse God that you may die. All these things are happening, Job, simply because you have sinned. And Job says, no, I am innocent. I am innocent. And then Job, of course, does what, what we tend to do. He, he goes and he decides he's finally going to go and put God on trial. He says, if God would answer me, I would put him on trial. And, and he wouldn't understand. He would, he would feel sorry for, for, for what he has done, for what he has allowed. And, and God appears to him in the whirlwind. He speaks to him. And he answers Job. And this was the beginning of his answer to Job. He says, Job, where were you? Where were you? And he goes on. We could go through all this, and it goes through all kinds of creation, all kinds of things that, that, that God understands about this physical world because he's the one who created it. And he says, you don't understand these things. Where were you, Job? Where were you? And I bring up this passage of Scripture because it really goes and it drives home this idea for us to truly understand the doctrine and to understand life itself. We need to understand that God is the self-existent one. He is the one who set things in order. He is the author of life. He is the author of life. In Psalm 139, verse 13, it says, You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. Specifically, physical life, God starts and creates in the womb. It's amazing. It's incredible. And God is the foundation for life, not just physical life, but as I said, 14.6, it says, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he said. God is the one who has spiritual life in him. He is the spiritual life. In John chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, a, a familiar passage because of John 3, 16, but it says in John 3, 15 through 18, it says that whosoever or whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then it says in verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten of the Son of God. Spiritual life is in Christ. It's in Christ alone. And this is something that we need to understand. God has life within him and he is set apart. He is, he is set apart from death. You know, a lot of times we like to go into to, to go into to claim that, that God is the, the, the one who is the author of death. A lot of times we think about that. 
But God is very clear, and we're going to develop this here uh, over the next few weeks, that God is not the author of death. Sin is the author of death, and therefore Satan is the father of death. God is the father of life. He is the author of life. He doesn't want us to die. He didn't intend for us to die. Now, of course, we've all sinned, and there is that consequence for sin. And we'll develop that here over the next few weeks. But I want us to understand right away that God is the author of eternal life. In John 4, verses 13 through 14, when Jesus is interacting with the woman at the well, he says this, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. That is of the well, the physical well. But then he said, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. God is the author. He is the foundational piece. He is the one that spiritual life flows from. We need to understand that. And therefore, it brings a response from us. We must worship the giver of life. Psalm 100 verse 1 says this, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Now, of course, this idea of making a joyful shout, it's referring to worship. And if we're to go and look at Psalm 100 uh, and break it down, we can see that it's very much geared towards thanksgiving and towards worship and all this idea. But how can it say all you lands? Shouldn't it just be those who are Christians who worship God? Why is it that, that those who, who aren't Christians, that God would go and command them and say, say, make a joyful shout to the Lord? What do they have to be thankful for? Well, God is not just the author of spiritual life, but he is the author of physical life. And everyone who walks upon the earth has partaken in physical life. So therefore, they ought to be thankful to the one who gave them that physical life. Now, they ought to accept that spiritual life, and they ought to then go and truly worship God. She can't truly worship him without, without knowing him. But it goes and it puts this mandate that, that they do have this responsibility, that they ought to go and recognize who gave them life. It doesn't matter how ardent of an atheist they are. They, they can't answer that question, where did life come from? How did life begin from nothing? They don't understand that. They can't actually give a reasonable answer. All people have something to be thankful for. Now, not all people are saved, but how can they thank God? Does God unjustly command us to do something? I think not. It's that they ought to go and thank God for their physical life. Now, I think they ought to come to him and know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior also. But we ought to thank God for physical life. We ought to thank God for spiritual life. Because isn't it simply put that life is better than death? Isn't that a simple thing? But have we ever thought about that? Life is so much better than death. But God is self-existent. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. God is self-existent. And this must be our lo logical starting point. Where did it all come from? Where did all this world come from? How, how is it here? Do living things come from dead things? No, they don't. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. 
Logically, it is true that there must have been a starting point, that there must have been a, a, a first cause, is what it's called in the scientific world, a, a first cause. And what is that first cause? That first cause is God. He was there in the beginning. He is there. He is what we call self-existent. You could go and take everything else away of this universe. You could go and take everything else away of all material things and God would still be there because he is self-existent. He is not dependent upon the air that we breathe. He is not dependent upon someone else. He is not dependent upon food. He is not dependent upon anything. He is self-existent. Logically, this is all true, that we must have something that is self-existent to create the world, for the world to begin, for something to happen. There must have been a first cause. And of course, we go and we look out and we see that this world obviously works together. It is cohesive. It is reasonable. There are things that work together. There are laws. There's the law of gravity. There are all these natural laws. And we go out and we see, where did they come from? They must have come from something. And we call this the clockmaker argument. You go and you see a clock, a beautifully designed cuckoo clock, we'll go and say. And, and you know, it goes and, and just at the right time, the, the little cuckoo bird comes out and it, it makes its noise and, and it goes and it, it is ticking around and it works fine. Sir, somebody might have to wind it once in a while, but it is a wonderful clock. And, and no one would go and think that this clock just, wow, it just, it just appeared one day. Or, or guess what? I was going and I had all these parts and I went and I threw them up in the air and it came down just perfectly as a cuckoo clock. You know, we'd go and say that if somebody believed that, they were the ones who were indeed cuckoo. But we see here that that is a huge argument that people make in this world. That they go and they see that it works together. That, that just like clockwork, the sun comes up, it rises from the east and it sets in the west every single day. Every single day. They go and they see that every time they go and they pick something up and they, they, they drop it down, that gravity hasn't failed yet. It still works. And yet they go and they think, well, I think this just all came out by, by accident, by coincidence, that a big bang happened and wow, here we are. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. We had to have something that was self-existent to create this world that we live in. And that person is the God of the Bible. It is also properly basic to believe in God. It is properly basic to believe in God. Simply put, no person, no person was ever born an atheist. You go and you meet an atheist, the first thing you ought to go and say to an atheist is, when did you become an atheist? And they'll tell you their story, why, why they got mad at God, why they believed that God failed them in some way, when this, or, this world was, was just, it was mean to them, and so they quit believing in God. But they'll never say, well, I was born that way. I just never believed in God. Nobody will ever say that. In fact, David Livingston the great missionary who went and, and opened up the, the continent of Africa was the dark continent. People hadn't mapped it out. And he did most of the mapping out of the continent of Africa. He went in and, and, and he, he made jottings in his journal saying that, that no matter the most rem, remote part, the most, re, ugh, I can't say it, the most remote tribe in Africa that was not exposed to Christianity, by the way, right? This is a dark continent. He's a, a pioneer trailblazing missionary. 
It wasn't exposed to Western culture because they like to go and say, well, it's the culture that you live in. That's why people believe in God in America. No, even in the darkest place in Africa where they had not been exposed to this, they believed in some God, in some kind of a deity. They always worshiped something, even the most remote tribe. It's because no person is born an atheist. How can it be that no person is born an atheist? Well, Psalm 19.1 tells us why. The heavens declare the glories of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Continues on, day unto day utter speech. Night to night showeth knowledge. There's no speech nor language where his voice is not heard. Everyone can go and see that this world had to be created from something. We have a knowledge, a properly basic knowledge that there is a God. God is self-existent. It must be that way. It's logically true. It's also theologically true. I think the greatest statement of this is the simple words, I am. I am. And in Exodus 3, 13 through 14, where God goes and he tells Moses, hey, I want you to go and, and, and go back to Egypt and, and go and, and deliver my people from Pharaoh. And of course, Moses here, he's lost all of his confidence at this point in time. And he's lost his confidence in God to a point. And he's going and saying, how can I do this? How can I go back and do this? I mean, I mean what, what will happen? What if they won't believe me? What, what if they, they won't accept me? Well, what shall I do, God? And God tells him this in Exodus 3, 13 and 14. He says, Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What is God saying to Moses? He's saying, I am self-existent. I need nothing else. I am, period. God is self-existent. In John 8, 58, Jesus confirmed this, that he indeed is self-existent because he indeed is God. And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am, I am. Jesus made the same claim that God did because Jesus is God. The doctrine of life, it begins and it must begin with the self-existent one. We cannot get life from death. We cannot get life from something that does not exist, whether physical or spiritual. It must flow from something. And so therefore, we must go and find the source. We must go and find the foundation. We must go and find the anchor of life, the self-existent one. Who is it? It is the God of the Bible. Life comes from God. It is necessary for us to eventually look at the doctrine of death, and we will look at that, and compare it to the doctrine of life. But for now, we need to understand this principle. Life comes from God. Death does not come from God. Death comes from sin. Romans 6.23. A source of life is necessary. And a source of life is also a necessary presupposition for us to use reason. To convince someone of physical life. If we do not have this presupposition that there is a source for physical life, then how can we know that the life of a man is of any more consequence 
than the life of an insect. How can we know that? If there is not a source of life, if we do not presuppose that life comes from someone and therefore it's defined and valued by someone, how can we know that a man, a person, is, has a life that is of any more consequence than an insect? Just last night I was, uh, saw a headline and I, I saw a video of this. And it was um, animal activists, animal rights activists, uh, who were going out and, and they actually stole a dog from a homeless man. I don't know if you saw this. Actually, this video was from a couple years ago, but it just recently went viral. But they stole a dog from a homeless man. And I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a wild, wild video. Uh, they come up to the homeless man and they're wrestling around and they take this dog from him and they run off with this dog. I mean, what a terrible thing to do. But the whole premise of what they were doing was that they were going and saying that because this homeless man owned the dog, they're going and saying it would be absolutely terrible for this dog to live homelessly, so we're going to go take him to a shelter. Now, don't worry, it has a, it has a good ending, but the, the, man, the dog was returned to the man. Okay. But stop for a moment, because I know we all have soft spots in our heart for, for, for little furry creatures. But stop for a moment. Why weren't those people grabbing the homeless man and taking him to a shelter? It's because they value the life of a dog more than they value the life of a man. Now, how could they make that assumption? How could they value it in that way? How could they have such terrible values in those ways? Well, it's because they don't have this presupposition or they've denied this presupposition, I really should say. And that is... A source of life is necessary. A source of life to value life, to define life, and to value life is necessary. The only option outside of this presupposition is to believe man's life is of more consequence than an insect because we are more powerful. See, some people would go and say that, that we, we are above man. This would be a Darwinian point of view, okay? This would be what, what Darwin presented, that it is the survival of the fittest. So therefore, the reason why our life is of more value than an insect, than a little cockroach out there, it, it's, it's not because God said so, although that's what we believe as Christians, that God said so. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. He'd go and say, because we are more powerful than the insect. We, uh, you know, I... Maybe there should have been one sitting at my feet there. I could have made that nice crunching sound there of an insect. That we, we can go and we can step on an insect. We can go and kill a cockroach. We can go and kill an ant because we are more powerful than an ant. So therefore, we are greater than the insects. Now stop for just a moment here and think about the implications of this. If that were true, you would have a tough time making the argument that it was only on a species level. That it was only on a species level. So therefore, it would be that the biggest, strongest, most powerful person could go and kill any person that was of less power than them because they are greater than them. That would be logical in that worldview. Isn't that ridiculous? Not just ridiculous, actually. Let me change that here. Erase that in your mind. It wasn't, it's not that that is ridiculous. It is that that is evil. That's what it is. To think that because we have greater power in our hand, we can go and take the life of somebody else without just cause. It's also a necessary presupposition that there is a giver of life 
to convince someone of spiritual life. If there is no source of eternal life, why would we believe in eternal life at all? Ultimately, if we reject the presupposition that there is a a source of life, that there is a God, we dive ourselves into nihilism. It is natural then to believe in nihilism. What is nihilism? It is that this world has no meaning. This world is pointless. Life is pointless. But the doctrine of life starts here that God is self-existent, that there is a presupposition of a self-existent God, that there is a source of life, and this allows us to place a value on life, and this allows us to find a purpose in life. Without starting here, people view the world in power structures. The most common phrase to describe this power structure would be oppressed versus oppressor, also known as critical theory, or what is more commonly known as Marxism. Marxism is a rejection of the foundation of the doctrine of life. It is what happens when you make evil a science. I am am firmly convinced that the science of evil is Marxism. That they go and they say, okay, it is oppressor versus oppressed. We are going to go and instead of viewing this world within the system, within the system of the word of God, that there is a source of life and he defines and he values life and he goes and it all flows from that source of life. They go and they say, we reject that. That Karl Marx's goal in life was to, to, to destroy capitalism and to dethrone God. But, but Marx here, he presented this idea that we should go and view this world within power structures. That there are those who are oppressors and that there are those who are oppressed and they are pitted against one another. And he goes and he actually goes and says that those who are oppressed are actually the ones who have the real power. So therefore, the working class of the people should rise up and take that power and dethrone that power. And that's how he goes and he views that world. Without this starting point, though, that there is that life flows from a source. Then people also have no purpose in life. And the only purpose that they can find in life, which is a superficial purpose, is their own pleasure. And we call that hedonism. That they're living for their own pleasure. They're living for themselves. You know, YOLO, you only live once, so we might as well do it so it's all fun, right? That's called hedonism. Now, that's hedonism like YOLO. But it's hedonism. Living for your own pleasure. When the excitement of life, though, slows down, when death enters in, which because we live in a fallen world, death always enters in, when, when, when life is no longer fun, where does the hedonist go? The hedonist goes to nihilism. It's the only place where a hedonist can go. A hedonist can only move from pleasure to what is the point. That is the only place that a hedonist can go without rejecting hedonism. And that's because once the pleasure slows down, once life slows down, once you find out that that going out and living life to the fullest, so to say, from an earthly perspective, isn't really living life to the fullest, that that what is the point? That, that, That sin brings misery. They can only go into nihilism asking, what is the point of this life? And they cannot give an answer. 
because they tried pleasure. And as Solomon points out in Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon goes and says, hedonism doesn't work. Hedonism doesn't work. When death confronts the hedonist, they always become a nihilist. What is the point of this life? Because there is no pleasure in death. That's quite a bit on the first few words of Genesis 1.1. So let's move on to Genesis 1.26-28. In verses 26-28 it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Life comes from God. See, point number one is what I put down in my notes. So what we just talked about, life comes from God. God said, let us make man in our own image. And we need to keep that in the forefront of our mind that God defines life. It's not we ourselves. It's not a democracy that defines life. It is God who defines life. God places value on life. It's not us who defines the value of life. It's God who defines value of life. So therefore, we find the value of life in his word. It is also that God is the author of life. And we need to keep these things in our mind. But it is the image of God that man was created. Now, I I believe that this idea has to do with the fact that man was made in three parts, just as the Godhead is three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So man has three parts, body, soul, and spirit, where Hebrews uh, tells us that the Bible is the only thing that can go and divide between the soul and the spirit. We have a tough time dividing that, but it is only the word of God, that idea of our conscious mind and our eternal soul, uh, those, those different ideas. Now, uh, unfortunately, here we don't have time to spend to go into to break down these three parts of man. I wish we could. There is so much in Genesis 1. It, it is absolutely killing me that we had to skip from verse 1 to verse 26 because in those the 22 through 25 has just such incredible stuff to look at. It is absolutely killing me. And I'm just going like, man, I wish we could just go and spend that, but I don't think you really want to spend seven hours on this message. And I really want to go and give us a good introduction to the doctrine of life. But the main point that we're going to touch on today concerning the doctrine of life that man was made in the image of God is that we are immaterial in a sense that these bodies do not last, save the rapture. But we ourselves will last. We will last. Man was made to be everlasting without death. Simply put, without death, life never ends. I mean, that's kind of a well-duh statement, but it's true. Have we ever thought about that? If death had not entered into this world, if sin had not entered into this world, if death, therefore following it, had not entered into this world, we would be everlasting. We, We would never die. God did not intend for man to die. He didn't intend for death to come. He's not the author of death. He is the author of life. Now, because death has entered the world, though, and we'll look at that here in the coming weeks, through one man's sin, we will forever either, we will last forever, either in eternity, in heaven, living, 
or in eternity in hell dying. It's an interesting paradox. God created us in his own image, so therefore we have a soul that will last forever. The question is, will it live in a state of eternal life or will it live in a state of eternal death? That is the ultimate spiritual question we must ask ourselves. But I want us to note uh, from this passage, there is a biological order also. Now, this doesn't necessarily, I mean, it has some, some tentacles with the, the doctrine of life, but it is something that we just can't pass up and pass over while looking at this passage here. It says, uh, in God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. I want us to note from this passage that there is a biological order. God is the God of order, and he makes a biological order here. He makes males, and he makes females. That's what he makes. He doesn't make any of the other 750 made-up uh, genders that are out there in this world. He makes males, and he makes females. And this is important for us to understand today's culture because it is a mental disorder to think that we are not ordered biologically, and this is called gender dysphoria. And this is absolutely important that we understand this and recognize this. I'm not sure what it's called scientifically when someone chooses to support a mental disorder in a person's life, but biblically we call that person an enabler of sin, an enabler of sin. So these people who go out and they say, well, I, you know, I, I get it here. I was born a male. I was born a, a female. I was born my, my biological gender. But then they come out and they put their hand on somebody and they go and they say, but you can think that you're something that you're not and, and you can just go and live in, in your gender dysphoria and it's okay. We go and, and, and there's a, a, this idea that that is loving. It's not loving to let somebody live in a mental disorder. It's not. It is destructive to that person. It is absolutely the most unloving thing you can do for a person to let them live in their mental disorder. To let them live in that mental disorder that Romans 1 would go and indicate came from sin and is a debased mind. The acceptance that gender is fluid or that there is some strange number of genders and any more or any less than two is a strange number in this context is an attack on God's orderliness. One of the first attributes that we see about God after we see that he is self-existent in the beginning God is that God is a God of order. So therefore, Satan being the opposite of God, he's not self-existent, first of all. And second of all, we must also recognize that Satan is, we could say, the small g, God of disorder. And he wants to attack the things that God has ordered and always attack the order that God has set. And this, of course, includes in the area of biology and gender. Also in this passage here, we see that, that mankind is given the ability to reproduce physically. And it's interesting also when we consider the idea that mankind now, through the doctrine of reconciliation, we are able to reproduce spiritually by leading people to Jesus Christ. But I also want us to notice, and we're going to develop this here in just a moment, that we pass down, that mankind passes down the image of God. Isn't that incredible to think about? God made man in his own image, and it wasn't just Adam and Eve that were made in the image of God, but each and every person since then bears the image of God. We pass that down. But when it comes to this doctrine of life, it's not just this idea that we see the source of life, 
that we go and we see that, that God ordered life and he is the one who values life. But it is also important that we recognize that there is a purpose of life and God gives a purpose of life and he lists the purpose when he created mankind. Physically here, there are a few things that were mentioned in Genesis 1 that God gave purpose to man. The first one here is to subdue the earth. God made the earth for us in that sense. We are not made for the earth. And this is part of why it is such a terrible thing to worship God's creation over him. It's because God didn't intend for the, the earth to be over us. He intended us to be over the earth. The other reason why, of course, it's, it's such a terrible thing to worship God's creation over him is it, pretty simple, and that is because... Well, we're worshiping something other than God. That's idolatry. And so that's terrible to do that. That's a sin. But the push in today's culture for climate change is once again an attack on how God has ordered things. To value the life of our climate over the life of man is to pervert God's order. Have we ever thought about that? It perverts God's order when we recognize that man was created to be over this earth. Not that the earth was to be over us. When we stop and we consider the goals of climate change, and, 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 and we should maybe dive into that. A couple of years ago, we, we really dove into that idea of climate change and, and looked at that from the biblical idea and went to Romans 1 and how they're going and they're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. But the, the problem, we also dove into the science of it and how it's, you know, one quote is, is that we have to cherry pick the facts if we're going to come to these conclusions, says a UNI professor. But when we go and we, we look at this idea here, climate change's ultimate goal is to limit the population, to place our world, they're going and saying our climate is above mankind. If we die... If we perish, that's okay as long as the world keeps going. That's the whole premise, the whole foundation of climate change and the thrust of it. Well, the Bible tells us mankind, you are above this earth in value. Therefore, you ought to subdue the earth to value the life of our climate over the life of man is to pervert the word of God. Man is above the earth in the creation hierarchy. Isn't that great? Isn't that great to know? We are the apex of God's creation. Mankind is. Then it tells us to have dominion over the earth, to have dominion over it. And this is the, the, the Hebrew word radah, radah. And it means to tread down, to subjugate, specifically to have dominion or to prevail against it, to reign or to rule or to take. And the ultimate idea here is stewardship. It's not that we're to just go and that we are above the earth so we can go and just, just dominate it and do whatever we want to it and go and, and trash it. Hey, I, trust me, I, I've gone kayaking quite a bit and picked up an awful lot of trash in, 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 the, the, uh, in, in the river systems of Iowa, okay? I, I'm not for destroying intentionally our climate because God also goes and he says, not just be over it, but then he goes and he says, have dominion over it. It's that idea of steward it. 
realized, says, God, I'm the one who made it. So therefore, take care of it. So we ought not do things that intentionally go and destroy the earth. So I'm not sitting here going and saying, let's all go outside and litter today, okay? That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm preaching when I'm saying that we are above the climate in this. This is the purpose in life and of all mankind is to live in obedience to God. And that is the ultimate stewardship, to live inside the bounds of God's law. Then it also tells us to fill and to multiply upon the earth. And there is an order of sexuality also, not just an order of gender, but also an order of sexuality. And it starts with that order of gender, male and female. Later, God reveals that, of course, it is to be through marriage. And this gives us great insights into the natural desires of mankind, that idea to go and to fill and to multiply the earth, that sexual desire, and then also to have dominion over the earth, to subdue it, to go and to have private property, to own land for ourselves, to go and to have that there. Those are generally the two things that people are most greatly motivated by in this earth. There's also a spiritual purpose that God gives us, not just those physical purposes upon this earth. One is, or or the spiritual purpose is to bear God's image, to bear God's image, to represent God. Now, we, we understand that Christians are ambassadors of God. But God's original intent for mankind was to bear God's image perfectly. That's God's design, that we ought to perfectly bear God's image I say this because even the unsaved do bear the image of God, but they, of course, do so imperfectly. Even as Christians at times, we do so uh, imperfectly. We must have a good testimony as a Christian. And that's how we're bearing God's image. We're going, we're pointing people to Christ ultimately. Let it not be said of us Christians that we have the same testimony as the unsaved, that people can't see Christ in us, that the only thing that they can see is that we, we, we at the very basic level, bear that image of God. But this is what we were made for, and this is what we ought to strive for, is to go and to bear the image of God to others, to go and to, to show God's order, to go and to show how God designed things. Now, of course, with sin came in and it corrupted everything. And it means that the only way that we can have redemption is through Jesus Christ. And, and, and this is ultimately where the doctrine of life leads us to, is that sin came in. Sin came in. And of course, we've all sinned. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. And then, of course, in Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. And this is ultimately where the the doctrine of life is leading to is that because death has come up, because death is in our life, because we ought to live in a life of condemnation, God had to make provision for us. And he made provisions through Jesus Christ coming and dying on the cross, bearing our sin. He became sin who knew no sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him. He died upon the cross, and he was buried and he rose again on the third day, providing a way of salvation. And we think about the resurrection, which is something we have to touch on. When it comes to the doctrine of life, we're going to be looking at that here in the next few months. The doctrine of life and the resurrection. Jesus Christ, remember, he's self-existent. How could he defeat death? Because he's self-existent. He rose Again, 
and that is the only way, was that a self-existent God would die. Defeat death to provide a way of salvation for us so that we might have eternal life. Though our sin had condemned us, he is the propitiation, the substitute, the penalty, the payment for our sin. That's what the doctrine of life is about. But today, as we started off, and we had to look at the physical side, we have to start off, where does life start? I hope we recognize that life starts with God. He is the self-existent one. Physical life, spiritual life starts with God. He's the one who values it. He's the one who defines it. It flows and comes from God. We must recognize that. That's where we start. And of course, it ought to challenge us to thank the giver of life. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, it's not just that you are, should be thankful for the physical life that you have, but it is that you should be thankful for the spiritual life and the eternity that you will spend in heaven. And today I just want to challenge us to recognize where does life begin and to thank God because he is the beginning and the giver of that life. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do just thank you for, the, for this opportunity given us to come and to look into your word. What a privilege that is, Lord. Father, as we go and we, we consider all of this, we just praise you that you are the giver of life. And Lord, as we look at this doctrine of life, Father, we pray that we might be thankful for life. And Lord, if there's any here that has not accepted you as their Savior, that do not know you, who have not accepted that eternal life, Father, we pray that they might do so today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.